and welcome to The Great Indoors. The podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Sophie Robinson. And I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. And coming up today, we will be reviewing a brilliant batch of design books just in time for your Christmas lists. We'll also be wading into the battle of the big light and our star surgery is a listener's problem with paint. Now this topic may seem innocent at first but in my experience any discussion around this subject can quickly end up with raised voices, foot stamping and unhealthy blood pressure levels. (laughs) But who dares wins? So Sophie can you explain to everyone the battle of the big lights? <laughs> yeah, this is something that we spotted on Twitter, which I've noticed has since rippled out onto Instagram. But it started off with a tweet from Isabella Rosner looking at her Twitter feed. She's PhDing history, Quakers, woman of needlework, wax and shell work from 1650 to 1800, textile queen and curator. However, she's got a bit off topic here with what seemed like a very harmless tweet. She says, is being anti-big light a British thing? Double question mark. (laughs) I feel like I've never met so many people who hate the big light. I'm indifferent to the big light. I may even be pro it. Am I the weird one? Henceforth, Thousands and thousands of comments and loads and loads of like. I mean, it's just gone completely viral, this tweet. Well, it ended up in The Guardian, didn't it? There was a comment by Helen Rumbelow, a columnist. Yeah, which I thought was brilliant. Here's what she had to say. She said, the glow from below. (laughs) (laughs) And by big light, she does not mean a sinister multinational that has monetized the sun, but an overhead light in living rooms rather than table lamps. Any Brit knows big light supplies all the atmosphere of a dentist's surgery. During childhood, our dads arrive from home to switch off big light with the words, it's lit up like a Christmas tree in here, and trained us that big light only went on for traumatic emergencies. It's interesting, isn't it? Ages ago, I remember getting an email from one of my blog readers saying that she was redecorating. I think she just moved in with her then boyfriend, I think they were getting married, but they got this new flat and he was absolutely determined that there would only be a big light. He was not having lamps of any sort, no floor lamps, no table lamps, no task lamps. She was so distraught, she wrote to me to say, what What can I do? And and we is got- Is it too late to, is it too we, late is to, it too late to back out? <laughs> and we, but we got quite in depth and it sort of turned out that he was quite traumatised by the idea of table lamps. And it was- Something, I now can't remember it because it was a few years ago, but somebody tripped over a table lamp and hurt themselves and he was forever traumatised by the idea of the table lamp and therefore the big light was a safety issue, which is not a term I'd heard before. But Gosh, um, I've never heard of table lamps being a trip hazard. It was a childhood trauma that was clearly (laughs) playing out in this poor couple. I can't remember her name. If she's listening, do get in touch and let me know if you resolved it. But uh, so, So where do you stand? We are... In your sitting room, which has, well, not the highest ceiling I've ever seen, Mm. so there is no big light. Now, I'm going to say that you revealed in last episode that you were a secret minimalist trying to get out of your maximalist sitting room. No, that's what you read into the fact that I'm curating my cushions, Kate Watson. You're not making me into a minimalist. Are you actually a big light fan, but your ceilings aren't high enough? So this room, can you believe, had not one but 
two big lights in it when I moved in. So you knocked yourself out it every time you walked in. Two like those sort of black iron chandelier type with bare candle bulb effect. Mm. Oh, so awful. So, like double big light whammy, like horrendous. <laughs> And so, no, I've resolved that problem. We got rid of those. And I have strategically placed spotlights in here around the edge of the room. And then you'll notice just one spotlight highlighting the central footstool. So you're anti-big light? I am massively anti-big light. Well, I am not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you've got lamps. You don't just sit under one big light. But I do have lamps. I have lamps in every room. And particularly in my sitting room, actually, I don't have a big light. But I do have a big light in my bedroom. And I'm not anti-big light. I like both. And I'll tell you why. First of all, I think you do need table lamps and side lamps and floor lamps because they do make a nice nice atmosphere. And there's no getting around that. You know, yes. those in favour of the big light, there is no atmosphere in yes. there. Dental surgery. So, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. That's the end of the discussion. However, right. if you've got a high enough ceiling, then I think give the ceiling something to wear. Okay. You know, you've got rugs on the floor, you've got furniture on the floor, you've got curtains and blinds on your vertical walls. That poor ceiling, which despite my banning of white paint several seasons ago, I might add, a lot of them are still white ceilings, naked. Yes. Give it a big light. Pick one that's beautiful and sculptural or has a fabulous lampshade. Am I right in thinking you're anti-lampshade? Yes, I'm you anti... See? Well, on a ceiling light, the problem with the lampshade on a ceiling light is then you just get the burn of the bare bulb. But no, but they have retina. those little flat things you can slot in. Well, yes, if you buy one of those and that's different. Plus big light. Yes, with a diffuser. Oh, all right. A diffuser. Light. Yeah, that's fine. But just a drum lampshade on a bare bulb dangling from your ceiling. That's the ultimate crime, isn't it? No. I mean, that's just like looking up somebody's skirt and you've got a bare bulb there. Well, and it's just so wrong. Which I believe up upskirting, yes, up lampshading up is actually a, a criminal event. <laughs> I would go for the diffuser so that you're not necessarily seeing the lampshade. But if you have a gold lining mm. on your drum lampshade, that casts a very pretty flattering glow into the room. No, it doesn't. No, it just makes it even more burny bright. No, I just... No, I just... This is the problem with the... In a living room, and I'd actually argue in a bedroom as well, actually, the problem with the central big light is you're sitting or lying below it and it's just burning light in your face and it's really uncomfortable. Well, this is where I have an issue with the big light, particularly in the bedroom, is the positioning of the big light. Because what happens is in 99% of cases, I would say... Big light is positioned bang in the middle of the room. Yes. And therefore, it often has no purpose because particularly in a bedroom, the bed, by the time you've put that against the wall, you probably find that the middle of the room where the big light is hanging is sort of either over a bit of empty floor at the end of the bed or over your feet. So it's pointlessly hanging out, doing nothing, illuminating a patch of bare floor. So the issue I have is with the position of the big light. And now you can get beautiful coloured flexes. You can buy them really long. You can extend the cord on your big light, move it over to a corner and hang it down either in the corner of the room and make a feature there or give it something to do it's pointless big light that I'm anti well I think the thing is about the big light though Kate is it just like blasts light all over the room it's like that thing isn't it of like looking like a dental surgery it's indiscriminate the bulb you know especially if you've got like we had here bare bulbs it's just throwing light everywhere and it's not creating 
any softness, any illumination. It's not spotlighting anything. It's just giving everything a big wash of bright colour. And I suppose if you've lost your contact lens, then yes, that's very helpful. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're snuggling down to watch a movie or, dare I say it, trying to relax in the evening, then it's not doing the job. So think about what you're doing in the room. Do you need that really big light action or do you need something more nuanced like you say highlighting a sideboard or a piece of art or you've got to think about what yeah I mean there is that but that's also the other point is you don't have to have that really powerful light you could have a much softer dimmer light you could have a dimmer switch so that if you do want or have a big light and that's the one you want to use you can turn it down but I would essentially say yes you want atmosphere through softer, lower lighting, particularly if you're using the room in the evening. Again, there's a difference, I think, between coming into a room on a sort of rainy day in November at two o'clock in the afternoon, where actually you need the light to see what you're doing, and going back into that same room at seven o'clock in the evening, where you might have a glass of wine, watch telly, and you want a quieter atmosphere. So it's all about the dimmer, isn't it? And the dimmer can get you out of lots of big light problems. It can. And I don't have a problem with a big light in terms of, as I say, giving the ceiling something decorative well, that's, and, that, and that's where your drum shade I'm sorry even if you've got a diffuser on it doesn't cut it that's where you need to think about something really more sculptural decorative. so chandeliers or yeah. yeah 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 something more befitting of your scheme that's got a bit of style makes a bit of a statement. and I think the other key thing which can get forgotten obviously all lights need to look good on and off but if you have a big light that absolutely I think needs to be sculptural or shapely or pretty because it can be a piece of art Mm. in the middle of the ceiling that's hanging around all the time. And the chances are you have it turned off more than it's on. So it needs to look happy when it's off. I think the thing about drum shades, and I will defend a drum shade, however, they can sometimes look a bit flat when the bulb inside them isn't illuminating the pattern. You know, they look a bit sort of lifeless and they sometimes need the bulb to kind of warm them up. So if you're having a big light, something sculptural that that looks great off as well as on is key. So I'm not going to ban the big light. I've banned the white paint on the ceiling, but I'm not going to ban the big light. You, on the other hand, are anti-big light. No, I'm not anti-big light, but don't just have one big light and nothing else. Think about it, plan your lighting, have some lamps, have some more lights. I mean, come on, let's go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Layer those lights, people. And you are not, under any circumstances, allowed to shade your bare bulb with a simple drum. That will not do. So here we have a lovely little pile of books. Uh, they are... Hill House Living, The Art of Creating a Joyful Life by Paula Sutton. We also have Calm by Sally Denning and A Modern Way to Live by Matt Gibbard. Okay, I do love a haul of new books, I have to say. And isn't this the time of year for it as well? Time for you to do reading. Yes. Is this your reading time of year, Sophie? Yes, yes, I don't do it all year round. Don't do it all year round. I wait for the clocks to go back. And then she's on fire to go on. That's it. Nice little warm mug of cocoa. And I'm ready to read the book. So the first one, top of my pile here, is Hill House Living, written by Paula Sutton, one of our most favourite Instagrammers at Hill House Vintage. And I think it's fair to say that Paula has been 
so successful with her Instagram account, hasn't she? I mean, is she on like half a million followers or something, something like that? that? It's just yeah. like huge, epic. And I think this book is the publication, the printed version of her Instagram feed brought to That's life. That's actually in paper. a really good description of it. It is exactly that. I mean, it's billed as simple, practical home styling tips and cozy recipes. But it is, if you love Paula's Instagram, which is based around her lovely house in Norfolk and her vintage shopping, incredible cakes, lots of styling of picnics on the front lawn and pumpkin soup for the time of year, then it's all in this book, how she does it. And so how she shops, what she cooks, how to get the look. And I suppose we should, for anybody who isn't within the 500 thousand followers that Paula's got <laughs> we should just really sum up what her style is I mean I think Paula has just sort of celebrated her love of interiors but a very nostalgic vintage take it's kind of slightly 1950s and it's very fantastical I think the impression I get Paula is just living her best life through her Instagram feed isn't she she's celebrating her beautiful home I mean her house is gorgeous country house the gardens and then this love of baking but it's all very nostalgic and I think for Paula it's just about celebrating you know what makes her happy and she's just sucked loads of people in with her passion of the good life really but I think What's interesting about this book is that she didn't grow up in the country. It's how she got to this kind of fabulous, contented, sort of bucolic country lifestyle. So she talks about her career in the fashion industry. She used to work in magazines as a stylist, the daughter of West Indian immigrants who settled in South London in the early 60s. So, you know, she's suddenly gone from sort of high heels and fashion and a very urban lifestyle to, as she says, a high heel loving disco dancing vogue buying Londoner has become obsessed with old buildings, period architecture, vintage treasures and all things floral and antique. And that's kind of what I like about it because it's not necessarily just talking to people who are already in the country. It's, you know, talking to everybody and saying, you know, you might find a love of vintage or country lifestyle through this book and, and go with Paula as she sort of discovers that love. And that's what I love about it. It's almost a sort of old-fashioned compendium of a book. It's not a coffee table book, this is interiors, and it's not a cookery book, and it's not a fashion book, but it's all of that bound up into one. So you can find a recipe for a sort of, I think it's a leek and chestnut tart on one page, and then turn over and get some tips on buying a vintage tea set or how you might style a bouquet of flowers in a jam jar. And it's that lovely sort of, I suppose it's the true sense of lifestyle, isn't it? But it's all yeah. brought together. As Sophie would say, is it a flicker or is it a reader? She likes a flicker, I like a reader. <laughs> Actually, I think this is both because you can flick through the pictures, but you can also read little bits of information and stories. It's a bit memoir. So it's a lovely... It's a perfect book for this time of year. I've just opened a page here. There's a whole chapter on autumn. So obviously looking at how you can enjoy the countryside and your home through the seasons. And here we find ourselves in the autumn. But she says, hey, like, have an autumn picnic. That's nothing. Oh, because she's mad on picnics, isn't she? She loves a picnic. She says, autumn marks the beginning of a luring sun and magnificent sunsets. And there is nothing more magical than a bowl or mug of hot soup in the garden. While the last rays of the sun disappear over the horizon, autumn picnics have a very different feel to the long, lazy ones of summer. Oh, 
I'm there for that. But I Love also like idea. it. She goes on to say, you know, this might just be two of you on a park bench or a group of friends on a city balcony. So you don't have to be in a huge garden in the countryside or in a big field. You know, any size place will do. But good tip. So obviously take a flask of hot soup and then butter slices of warm bread at home and wrap them in greaseproof paper to keep them moist and delicious and cover everything in your basket with warm tea towels or a hot water bottle. Good tip. Yeah. So you can have a hot, a hot picnic on your park bench. Lovely. And I think that's just one little insight into, yeah, it's a book of inspiration and ideas, isn't it? Love it. Thank you, Paula. Next up, we have Calm, Interiors to Nurture, Relax and Restore by the wonderful stylist Sally Denning and photographs by the equally wonderful Polly Reeford. And I'm a bit lost for words with this book because... Ah, uh, stop the press. Did you hear that? Kate Watson-Smythe is lost for words. What does, that, I what say does that sound like, Kate? What does you being lost for words sound like? Well, shall I explain in words <laughs> how I'm lost for words? <laughs> Do you know what? So I'm always going on about how I want a book of words and I want to read and I want to absorb and I want to learn. And this book is so beautiful that actually I sort of didn't want to read it. I just wanted to drink in the pictures because it's drink so beautiful. And it's so beautiful also. There's a key point here. A lot of very beautiful coffee table books are beautiful because they're so aspirational. And of course this is aspirational, but it also feels like you could do it. You know, have a, a nice plant here or just colour coordinate your aprons on a hook. I'm not saying you're going to do it, but it doesn't feel completely out of reach. And it's a beautiful mix of dark interiors, which I love, which you can kind of dive into, but also, you know, pale colours. I'm going to have... Colour, and there's some colour. She's got there a whole chapter on using colour. I, well, I haven't read it, you see. I've just been <laughs> looking at the pictures. But I just... This was, for me, a proper feast for the eyes, and I absolutely loved it. And I... Don't say that often about a book, actually. Well, it's no surprise. I mean, I've known Sally for many years and it won't surprise you to know that obviously she does styling for, you know, Homes and Gardens, Homes and Antiques, House Beautiful, those kinds of titles. But she also does a lot of styling for Little Green, who I always think their, their photography is always incredible. amazing. Yeah. Neptune. Similar. Similar. Yeah. So it's really interesting, isn't it, that some of our favourite images that we see from brands like Little Green and Neptune, you know, that's what Sally's done. So she's got such great experience on how to create looks and mood and feeling and how to put colours together. Um, and this isn't her first book, but it definitely feels like the richest in terms of her That's exactly sharing the word. her expertise. It's, it's rich, isn't it, in terms of the colour and the palettes? I mean, I would have thought flicking through this might be a bit brown for you. Well, you know, the front cover is very brown. I mean, interestingly, the book's called Calm and like, hey ho, it's a neutral <laughs> room set. It's not really a book for you, is it? Everyone but, seems to Is be... she going to do a follow up called Excitable? Well, it's just interesting that lots of people think Calm has to to be brown you know calm doesn't have to be brown but I think it's widely accepted that neutral schemes are calming oh, but what's I would nice say... is the book doesn't then go to be filled with neutral schemes there's a lot of color in here I feel though exactly that point I mean you're always laughing at me and my love of brown I'm going to go with chocolate <laughs> toffee caramel biscuit any particular other names you might want to go to mostly food related however I would say, for me, calm is not about an absence of colour or shades of brown. It's about 
tonal color. So it's deep color, but very tonal. So layers of, you know, all the chocolate from 90% to 70% to milk to white chocolate. Whereas you might find that a bit more draining. You like a high contrast color scheme more. And that is not what is in this book. You know, for me, obviously there are parts of my home that I want to feel calming, but they'll never be without colour. I can feel calm around colour for sure. And I think what Sally is helping you understand here that creating calm interiors isn't just about the colour palette. It's about the styling, the texture, the placement, the curation of objects. And this is what I think as a stylist she really brings to the fore. So I think this book would be interesting for anybody who's looking to decorate from scratch or anyone who's looking to just refresh and restyle their home with some fresh eyes. She's got some great insight. I'd recommend it for anyone who's in the industry, who wants to be a stylist, is a stylist, anyone who's an interior designer. It's a really, really nice, well-rounded book that's going to give you inspiration and insight. Yeah, I totally agree. I think just just looking at it does make me feel calm, but also makes me feel inspired and just gives you ideas of, you know, how you might place that lamp or how you might arrange your pictures or something. I think it's a great book. Love that one, Sally. I bet she's not a fan of the big light. There's a big light on the cover. But... <laughs> but I, it's a big light that is not hanging down pointlessly in the middle of the room at the end of the bed. It's a big light that's been moved to the corner of the room and is hanging over a chair by a large window. So that is a big light with point. <laughs> big there light with go. purpose. A big light with purpose. We're all about the big light with purpose. Now, this last book, I've got so many post-it notes in it, I don't know where to start. Sophie's presumably just looked at the pictures. It is called A Modern Way to Live, Five Design Principles from the Modern House by Matt Gibbard, who regular listeners may remember. We had him on that show, didn't we? Yeah, he was formerly senior editor of the World of Interiors. He's written on design and architecture of the Telegraph, House and Gardens, Al Decoration. But he's probably most well known for co-founding the Modern House, a pioneering design-led estate agency based in London, which... Well, we just love pouring over the modern house photography. Absolutely gorgeous. He's but married- also its sister site, Inigo. So the modern house obviously mm. is modern houses, but he recently, I think this year, set up Inigo, which is period houses, which are so beautifully photographed. So basically, Matt is someone who's completely immersed himself in all things design, as you said, mm. from early on a career writing about interiors to then helping people. I mean, I know he, it's essentially an estate agent but he's helping people find their dream houses with a view to them. I mean, to get on the Modern House or the Inigo website, you've I got to have... they reject you've so You've got to have houses, a beautiful yeah. house. And I he had knows to... a thing or two about great design. I've gone the other way around. I'm, well, A, I'm not selling my house, but if I were, I'm pretty sure that they wouldn't be interested in my bog-standard Victorian terrace. So actually, I needed some new photographs of my house taken. So I commissioned the photographer <laughs> from Inigo <laughs> to take the photograph. So I've come at it that way around. And that's the photographs you'll see of my house. Nothing's changed, but they're different photography. But this book is five design principles from the modern house, and they are space, light, materials, nature, and decoration. And he goes through them in some detail. And this is what I love about this book, that there's so much to take from it. There's so much to learn, which obviously I love. It's well-written, goes without saying he's a writer. But what I really love about it is that he's informed these principles 
because of the hundreds of houses he's seen over the last few years. So he can sort of say, you know, a great way to bring space into a kitchen is through broken plan living. And this works because, you know, it's not all the same room and you break it up in zones. A great example of this was a house we sold in northwest London three years ago where the owners had done this and that and then illustrate it with a picture. So it feels incredibly well-informed and knowledgeable. And there are lots of examples that you haven't seen before. Do you know, sometimes you look through coffee table books and particularly in our line of work, you think, oh, I know that house or I've seen that house or that's familiar to me. Because this is coming from a sort of encyclopedia of houses that have been sold over the last 10 years, you don't remember them all. You don't know them. You may not have even seen them. So it feels new. And that's what I loved about this book. It's interesting that you should pull out the photography because actually, you know, you're the reader, I'm the flicker. It's not the pictures that I'm actually really noticing in this book at all. I find the photography that's in this book, yeah, it's lovely, interesting. It's all quite small scale. There's not many full, you know, usually coffee table books have loads of full bleed images. Not so much in here. It's a very, very, very text heavy. It's so- lovely. <laughs> delicious. Just dive in and read it all. So it's definitely a different type of read, isn't it? It's not a book I'd say that you're going to pick up and get inspiration for some paint colours or how to style your home particularly. It's definitely much more of a study of what makes a great space to live. Well, I think if you want to get anything from this book, you've got to put the work in. You've got to read it. You can't just pick up a couple of pictures. But I would normally, before reviewing a book, I would say that I would read it so I could tell you about it. But actually, there's so much information in this one that I didn't want to rush through and read it before I came onto the podcast. So I've only read the first section, Space, which I've read in some detail. It's now bristling with post-it notes. Um, So I would say, you know, if you want to learn more about it, you're going to have to get the book and read it yourself. But he talks about the importance of having a single space in every home where everybody can come together. And it's not necessarily about having a big house, but is that your sitting room where everybody meets or is it your kitchen, traditionally the heart of the home? And how, you know, if you don't have enough space, people tend to stick a bog standard extension on the back, but then that might steal light from your big congregating space so that not everybody wants to be in there. So it's very much thinking about how you would use your space. And he talks about one house he sold, which belonged to the chef Gil Mella and his wife Alice. And it's a, they have a kitchen table for 10 people. And he says, my father made us the table as a moving in present and everyone who eats at it signs underneath. Over the seven years we've been here, it's become a lovely thing with lots of messages and notes of thanks and jokes and swearing. It's our visitor's book. People eat, they sign the table. It's a wonderful record of good times. <laughs> and this book is packed full of insights like that from the houses he's sold and visited and the people he's interviewed. And, you know, I've got a really big kitchen table, which is like a big slab of tree trunk. And I've had that table for nearly 10 years. And I'm now thinking, why didn't I know about that before? So now I think I'm going to have to start that. And everybody signs under the table. I think that's an incredible idea. Yeah, that's super cool. And that, for me, that's what this book is. A visitor's book is an old-fashioned way. The modern way to live, get everyone to sign your kitchen table. (laughs) I love that. 
If anyone has read any of these and wants to share their thoughts, do join the conversation on our Facebook group, The Great Indoors Podcast. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram, where I'm Sophie Robinson Interiors, and she's mad about the house. Right, moving swiftly on, time for our style surgery. Okay, so we've had this design question from Victoria. Hi, Sophie and Kate. I have a design question for the podcast. I love listening every week. You have such infectious fun together. And I always feel I'm having a cuppa with my design fanatic friends. So we have just moved into my family home. Thankfully, the parents have moved out. They took the cat, but left the loft full. There's lots of reno work to be done, which is exciting, if a little daunting. But one thing we can get on with without a builder is the master bedroom. It's a huge space with a large gable window that has views down the garden, so you feel like you're sleeping up in the trees. It's painted an awful yellowy buttermilk colour that my mother painted everything, but I want to repaint it green to echo the outside. My question is, do you continue the colour up over the ceiling when you have a slanted ceiling, or do you stop the colour and go for a lighter neutral where the walls meet the slanted ceiling? I usually feel quite confident when it comes to painting walls and choosing colours, but this has me stumped. I'm also planning for it to be quite dark green if that changes any advice. I hope you can help. Well, I think this is quite a common question because I think a lot of people, you know, with loft conversions or small bedrooms up in the top or under the eaves are confronted with that issue of where does the wall stop and the ceiling start. And my general advice, she threw us a curveball in the last sentence, my general advice would be to take the colour up over the ceiling and wrap the room in it because I think it, you know, otherwise you end up with a sort of band of colour around mm. the bottom of the room and then this huge expanse of Usually white, white ceiling, yeah. which isn't necessarily showing off the room to its best advantage. The other thing that does as well is it highlights the weird angles. Yes. Because quite often... If you follow that line, it goes up and then it goes down yeah. and then it goes in, then it's a bit awkward around the window. Then or it goes you up have again. a bit where it isn't even an angle because it's got too much plaster on it or it's old and it's just a bit curved. Yes, and then you really yes, go, you yeah. can't even make a straight line. Yes. I mean, that it can be a nightmare. And again, she threw in at the end that she's going to do it in a dark green. So that may change your opinion of wrapping the whole room in dark Ooh, green. That changing, may be too not much. Changing my Might opinion. be lovely. Mm, Depends yes. how much you if use you the room If you want to feel like you're is. living in the trees, I think that then would be a lovely. lovely lush green. But the other thing, I my approach for a room like this with odd angles and different ceiling heights and bits that are ceiling that could be wall, wall that could be ceiling, I think you've got to stop trying to define is that wall or ceiling? That's the first thing I would say. And say, this is a surface that needs to be painted. Mm. And then look at it and say, well, do I perhaps want to create, in this case, a whole dark green area from the top down to the bottom by the window and make that a lovely seating area? Create, create a feature. Or do I want paint. to do it over the bed so it's like a canopy? Mm. Or do I want to wrap the whole room? Mm. Or, you know, is that just an area which is a dressing area? So I may highlight that in a different colour. I think you've got to you've got to move away from the sort of planes of wall and ceiling. So headline is, first of all, all in one colour to paint away the awkward angles, that's one strategy, but usually one airs on a lighter colour because it's going everywhere. Yeah, could be full on. Point two is 
choose a darker color with a lighter color, not necessarily white, just a paler version or something, you know, lighter. Or a toning color, so toning very color. dark green with pale like pink. stone color. Or, or a stone yeah, or yeah, something lovely. like that, yeah. So the other one is to highlight the architectural detail, but in a considered, deliberate way, not yeah. just by trying to follow some random line around the room. And this is where I think, because I can feel you bristling to say to me, are you advocating a feature wall? Yeah, 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 right. I am. So I here's am. where I'm going with it. Yeah, I'm off. So here's what I'm going to say. If you, for example, wanted to do the wall behind the bed mm -hmm. in that very strong green, the trouble with feature walls is they're like the stranger hanging around on the edge of the party. Bit random. No one knows why they're there. They don't know anybody else. <laughs> However, you need to introduce said stranger to the rest of the party. So if you do the wall behind your bed in a particular colour, then carry on the skirting boards in that colour around the rest of the room. And then you've introduced the feature wall to the other walls. And if that's a dark green, so dark green behind the bed, dark green skirting boards and up onto the window, it's then become a green room. It's all introduced. Every wall's met every other wall and the ceiling as well. And then you could do the rest of it in your pale colour. So again, not oh, gleaming white if it's dark green. I never thought of that as a strategy, pulling the colour along the skirting boards. I mean, you could, so that's one way of doing it with paint. Or you could just do it by, for example, if you've got a very strong green on one wall, make sure that there's some strong green in your curtain fabric or on the rug on the floor, or perhaps in a piece of artwork. So it's essentially pulling the colour away from the feature wall and injecting it in the other areas of the room. Totally. And again, if you had wallpaper, again, wallpapering rooms with slanted ceilings can be difficult because, you know, you can't have that sort of famous... Is it Ardmore leopard wallpaper? Because you don't want the leopards upside down or somersaulting or walking in the wrong direction. But if you had a fairly sort of abstract print or a floral where they're not too obviously growing in one direction, again, you could take that up behind the bed and up over to the apex of the sloping ceiling, if you like. And that almost creates a sort of canopy mm. of colour behind the bed and up over your head. And then take one of the colours around the rest of the room. See, so I, you, quite li I quite like a pattern wallpaper in an attic room. I think it's Me too. Amazing. I think it's lovely. And again, it does the brilliant job of blurring the awkward lines, yeah. doesn't it? And sort of camouflaging the awkward angles. And I think some, tra again, it's picking the right pattern. I think some trailing patterns can work. They all need to grow upwards. You've got to make sure they're going in the and right direction. And what you're saying is yeah. make sure you don't bring something upside down because then your flowers are drooping rather than... <laughs> or there's a beautiful wallpaper I've seen a lot but it's got lovely sort of little green leaves. And if you look closely, it's got little snails on it, you know. I mean, you just Ooh, don't want those I snails upside down snow. dropping off the ceiling, do you? <laughs> so you've, you've got to choose your pattern carefully. But I think absolutely wallpapering an entire attic room looks amazing. And again, amazing. going back to Victoria's design, you know, the fact that she's got this lovely bedroom with a gable window overlooking the tops of the trees to bring in a wallpaper totally. that had a leaf motif or a trailing design would enhance that connection of the outdoors even more, wouldn't it? Yeah. Love that idea. Oh, I hope Victoria we've given you even more ideas. More of a dilemma now. Of how Paint you wallpaper. can uh, and, and, and also, I'd just like to say as a final note, down with the yellowy buttermilk. I fully concur, Victoria. <laughs> sounds <laughs> awful. Worst colour ever. So I think anything you do will be an improvement on that. So do let us know your pressing style surgery queries. Just send us an email and preferably a voice note to thegreatindoorspod at gmail.com. There will be more details about everything we've chatted about today on the blogs where I'm sophierobinson.co.uk and she's madaboutthehouse.com. 
And if you get a chance, do leave us a review on your podcast app. It really helps other listeners to find us. So that just leaves me to thank our producer, Kate Taylor of Fleece Collective. And thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you in the great indoors. 